It says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And Father, we humbly ask now as we continue in this time of worship, Lord, as we've prayed and sang and given to you of our tithes and offerings, Lord, we thank you that this is just as much a part of our worship now as we give to you our heart and our attention and an ear that wants to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church assembled this day. So we pray, help us now by the power of your Holy Spirit, make our hearts good and fertile soil and and put the seed of your word deep into our heart, Lord. Feed us, nourish us, speak to us in a personal and a timely way, whatever it is we need to hear from this section of scripture that you've given to us from your word. Bless and speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, if you were to consider it for yourself, what would come to your mind in regards to perhaps the most destructive force that is in operation on this earth? If you watch some of these Discovery Channels, things may come to your mind, something like maybe a tornado or maybe a hurricane would rank high up there on the list, or maybe an earthquake, or one of those tidal waves or tsunamis. But I would propose to you that beyond those things, I think the proper answer to the most destructive force on earth, honestly, is just sin. I think stronger than any hurricane, more powerful than any tornado or earthquake, the power of sin in its destructive and damaging effects on this earth by far outranks all those other things. And I think that's why perhaps here we have this practical instruction given to us in the book of James to offer to us help in regards to temptation and sin and things that apply to those topics. The background, remember, we looked at as we began James last week, is James began by writing about how part of just living on this earth everyday experiences with the presence of sin that exists on this planet is it's going to bring to each and every one of us normal human struggles everyday challenges that we face hardships as we may refer to them as periodic tragedies sickness suffering financial problems health problems family challenges stresses of everyday life Uh, We're all going to undergo, James said, various types of trials. Some of those trials are short. Some of them last really long. Some trials are kind of not too difficult. Others seem overwhelming. Some trials we cause by our own poor choices. And we have our own self-inflicted trials by bad decisions or selfish behavior. Other times trials happen and they have nothing to do with anything we've done or not done. It's just part of living on this earth with its hardships. Life is difficult here. Yet he said we can know that in our trials our faith is being tested. 
It's being purified and we're being strengthened, if you would, spiritually. And trials are good developmental tools that God lovingly uses when they come to pass in our life to produce good things in us. No trial is ever in vain. It's not as if God is just letting us struggle or be miserable for no good reason. God uses trials for developmental purposes, oftentimes to purge out wrong attitudes or bad habits maybe that exist in my life or to develop humility in my life trials certainly have a way of humbling us they help us see our need for god and they produce in us james said good character they bring about a developmental process in us that we can grow and mature and develop in areas we're still lacking and as a result we become more complete individuals we we become more well-rounded And as a result of difficulties we endure through, even as Christians, that's what helps us oftentimes to become a more mature believer and to grow up in our spiritual life. But one of the difficult things, which we now talk about this morning, as we navigate through hardships and trials and pressures and difficulties in this life, is those pressures can often then become doorways of temptation for our sinful nature. That when I'm under pressure or you're undergoing a difficulty in your life, that sometimes becomes a doorway then to do what is wrong. Because perhaps we're at those moments tempted to react in wrong ways when under the pressure. Or we're uh, prone to respond in a way that would be sinful and inappropriate as the result of the difficulty we're facing. So James addresses here dealing with temptation and how to avoid It's deception that wants to lure us into sin and to wrongdoing. If you look with me again back in verse 12, as he carries on with this subject, he says, therefore, blessed is the man, verse 12, who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So James says here, there is both enjoyment now as well as reward eternally for those occasions when we're able to overcome the pressures of temptation out of our love for the Lord. He uses the word here temptation in verse 12 and what he's indicating here is undergoing a trying circumstance that then as a result of that often causes us to perhaps be tempted to want to behave wrongly in the midst of the trying circumstance. Uh, The indication here of the use of the word is a trial or testing of one's faithfulness to the Lord or one's fidelity to the Lord or one's love to the Lord. That something happens that tries and tempts us in regards to our faithfulness and fidelity in our love to the Lord. See, here's what happens. God allows trials. He permits on this earth us to face difficult things at times as part of life's journey. They have purposes. Yet each trial can also become a temptation. And what starts as a trial can many times translate then into a temptation as we undergo the pressure. Here's sort of the way it works. God allows a trial to come into my life and then the devil uses that trial and tries to turn it into a temptation to sin. 
And as I'm in the difficulty, God permits the difficulty, but then the devil tries to manipulate the difficulty, the pressure, the hardship, the circumstance in such a way that it then becomes a temptation for me to then sin against God or do what's wrong or disobedient. We undergo hard things and then my selfish and sinful nature wants to react in its sinfulness as that pressure drives to the surface my own selfishness and my own sinful desires to prompt me to want to behave in wrong ways so at that juncture when I'm under the pressure when you're in the midst of the difficulty we then need to understand this and we have a decision to make in that moment are we going to allow the hardship and difficulty to drive us to be unfaithful to the Lord or respond in a disobedient way or to behave wrongly and react in sinful ways or are we going to show our fidelity to the Lord and endure up under it out of love for him and experience the more blessed thing which is to keep honoring Jesus in the midst of the fire and to keep serving the Lord even when we're under the pressure that's why he says here blessed the idea there is just like in the Beatitudes that Jesus gave in Matthew 5 blessed that is oh how happy or fulfilled is the man who endures temptation the idea is to endure through it without giving into it to endure under its pressure without indulging what it may be tempting you to do again certainly that is a very blessed experience when you can go through a hardship and you feel the temptation to do perhaps what you shouldn't but you're able to walk in victory oh how happy that is how blessed it is to feel like i was close i felt the fire i saw the edge but by the grace of god i endured through it and how wonderful to then be on the other side of that and have the blessed experience of peace and not regret and the remorse because we caved in or we just added fuel to a fire by acting in a wrong or sinful way in our selfishness. And that word endures that he uses there in verse 12, it's the, the Greek term that means to hold up underneath something that's like a heavy pressure or load that's bearing down on you. And so you have this load or this pressure bearing down on you, but you bear up under the weight of it and you carry on without falling under the load. You carry through, you keep persevering without giving in under the weight of that and you endure what it takes to keep going and do what's right no matter, listen, what you're feeling or what you may be thinking in your mind. It's interesting, the, the analogy here, it seems the picture that's trying to be conveyed in the text is sort of like what we might think of an athletic competition where an athlete exercises needed endurance or perseverance to keep going in a situation when if you've ever done athletics or ran or anything of that nature, you know there are times when it would just feel best to just give up, to just stop. You know, you start running, maybe you haven't ran for a while, or maybe you're trying to push yourself beyond a place you have before, and everything in your fiber work of your body is saying, stop, don't take another step, quit, it doesn't matter. And, and everything within you is making you want to stop, to give up, to, to just kind of you know, give in on what you're doing, or maybe you're in athletic competition and you're weary and tired and you're cramping and everything in your body and outlook is saying, why bother? Just resist. Give in in this situation. Yet being able as an athlete 
to ignore those feelings, to suppress those thoughts because you want to achieve no matter what load you're under and you press on and keep enduring and perseverance without cheating or without quitting until the time is up, until you reach the end or cross the finish line. And this is often what we experience under trials and temptations. We have to decide when we're in that situation, am I willing to endure through this to keep honoring my Lord? Because Lord, in the midst of this, it's hard to keep doing what's right, but I will endure through this, Lord, to honor you. I won't give in to how I feel. I won't give in to what I think and the wrong ideas or you know the, the, the shots that are being fired across my bow by the enemy saying, you should just do this or why bother? Or, or and You deserve to respond or react in that way. And instead to say, you know what? No, Lord, I'm going to bear up under this. I'm going to endure. I'm going to remain committed to you because I love you. And I want to prove my love and my fidelity to you, even though it's hard. I want to keep pressing onward. He says, blessed is that man who endures under temptation for when he is approved. The idea is after he has been observed for what he has done, after the Lord has taken notice and he has earned the approval of the Lord for demonstrating faithfulness. James says, then verse 12, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, the term crown there that's used, it, it, the, the language, it's not reference to the royal crown. The word crown appears multiple times in the Bible. And the term here, receiving the crown of life, is not a reference to the royal crown. And what I mean by that is a crown that may be freely inherited by, let's say, a prince as the result of just birthright. A prince does not have to do anything to ultimately inherit and receive a crown. In fact, some princes are, are rotten, and yet they receive a crown, though they behave wrongly by birthright. And simply because of relationship, they receive a royal crown. The term here, crown, that's used is the word Stephanos in the Greek. It was a reference to the victor's crown given at the end of games. The ancient games, the Greek games, the Olympic games. It was the Stephanos, the crown of reward that the successful athlete got at the end of competing and succeeding because they pushed through what they needed to to ultimately triumph. As athletes competed in the various games in the ancient culture, there would be judges who would preside over the games. And they would watch the athletes and they would observe as they struggled in competition, as they ran the race and persevered and pushed on as they wrestled through another competitor or whatever it was. And at the end, those who triumphed under the challenges of competition and became victorious, as the result of that, they then received afterwards the Stephanos, the victor's crown as a reward to honor the fact that they fought through the battle and they triumphed and became victorious. And this is the idea here, acknowledging, congratulating the athlete with their success and their ability to endure. And that's what athletes, listen, would give their best for. They would train for such and they would put forth incredible effort and dedication to receive that victor's crown, the Stephanos. And this is the analogy for us in enduring trials and temptations. We're, we're going to all have to run our race, if it would. And there are going to be times as you're running the race 
when you're going to be facing cramps or difficulties or all of a sudden it feels like you're running uphill and it's hard and difficult and you want to give up and things are tempting you and pressuring you. But this is the idea here in the spiritual life that we as well, like the athlete, are to give our best. To give our best in serving the Lord, no matter what we're going through, in order to receive the reward eternally, that crown of life that the Lord will give to those who love him. Listen to how Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 9. He says this, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? But only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. That is, they live with self-control so they can perform to their best. Now, they do it, Paul says, for a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. He's drawing a contrast there. He's saying, listen, these athletic competitors they do these things discipline their bodies don't listen to their desires at times subject the feelings and the thoughts and press on and persevere and endure and exert incredible dedication because they want to win and be victorious and he said they do this for a victor's crown and here's what i didn't tell you the stephanos the victor's crown it it was just a plant it wasn't even a gold crown I mean, the thing died out. You couldn't even bring it home and put it on your trophy shelf. It'd go rotten in a few days. And he's saying they do this for a perishable crown, for a momentary reward. And he says, but yet we as God's people, we are seeking to do what we do to honor the Lord and we receive an eternal reward, an eternal and imperishable crown that one day we will be able to use to cast at the feet of Jesus as we worship him. And somebody says, oh, I don't, I, don't, I don't care. I don't, I don't really need a crown. If I just get into heaven, listen, I assure you, when you get to heaven, you're going to wish you had a crown. Because when everybody else is worshiping the Lord and enjoying the moment and casting their crown, and you're there with a beanie on with a propeller, <laughs> going, I, can I borrow your crown? Just, can I try it just once? I just want to see what it feels like once, just to, no, man, this is my crown. I earned it. <laughs> you're going to care. And here he's saying, this is why we should run our race, cross the finish line, because we're going to appear before the Lord and be evaluated one day. And there are a crown of life to be received from the Lord for those who have ran well, who've crossed the finish line, faithfully enduring at times when tempted, overcoming temptation out of love for the Lord and seeking to refrain from sin and pressure and resisting and remaining faithful because of your love for Jesus. And notice this crown of life is something it says in verse 12 that is promised from the Lord. It's a promised thing. Interesting, in Revelation 2, Jesus writes to the suffering believers there in Smyrna who were undergoing real pressure and hardship and being tempted very severely by the devil And Jesus said this to them, Do not fear any of those things that you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. And then Jesus' instruction, Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. That exhortation of Jesus, You be faithful if it kills you, he says. You be faithful unto death. Be faithful to me. Be faithful to what you know is right. And he says, one day when you receive that crown and hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, he says, I assure you, there'll be no regrets. 
No regrets whatsoever. Not one at all. And it's promised, it says here, verse 12, to those who love the Lord. We prove our love by exercising our commitment to him when we're tempted. And when it's difficult that we show our faithfulness and fidelity. And let me just say is that it says that it's given to those and promised to those who love the Lord. That shows as well, what is the healthiest motivator to resist sin and temptation? The healthiest motivator to remain loyal to the Lord? It's loving Him. It's just loving the Lord and developing a greater love for the Lord. It is amazing, is it not? What kind of sacrifices will be made for love? The sacrifices we see people make who are in love with someone, what they're willing to do because love is an action word. It's not a, it's, it's not a feeling. It's an action word. Love demonstrates itself. And when someone is genuinely in love, they will make sacrifices. That's how you can measure their love. And the same is true spiritually. When someone loves the Lord, they will make sacrifices sacrifices that at times will choose to deny themselves because they want to honor what's right and be obedient to the Lord even when the pressure's on and the temptation is on. So what a wonderful promise to know this crown of life to those who love the Lord. Perhaps that's you this morning. So stay faithful. Don't waver. You will be rewarded for your faithfulness in the midst of what you're undergoing right now. Then, knowing that sin can certainly be a deceptive thing, James gives a little bit of perspective now on temptation and sin, beginning in verse 13. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So notice what the Bible does here. The Holy Spirit gives James this really good counsel for believers that when we're being drawn or enticed to sin, when we feel tempted, it is never right to think that God is causing it or to blame God if somehow he is at fault for the reason why I feel tempted in this way within to do what is wrong. He says here, we should never say, verse 13, I am tempted by God. In other words, that God is to blame for what I'm tempted to do wrong. That we should never say that. The reason I'm tempted to do this or the reason I'm tempted and desiring to do what I am, well, it's God's fault. He's responsible for this inclination within me to do this wrong or sinful or, or uh, inappropriate thing. James states the biblical fact there by saying, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Again, God's very nature is that he's holy and he's just and he's righteous, he's unchanging and immovable. So God, because of who he is, cannot therefore be moved, pressured or persuaded to do anything wrong. And God, because of who he is in his nature and his love and his goodness, would therefore never even be able to tempt a person who he created to do that which is wrong or evil. It would violate the very nature of who God is and contradict his will, purpose, and nature. He would never persuade someone to harm themselves by indulging sinful behavior. He would never pressure someone from within to violate what's best for their life and bring upon themselves the damaging consequences that sin bring into a life. 
I mean, think of it just from the perspective of what God has done with his love in his son Jesus. God sent his own dear son to come to this earth and God allowed the punishment of the wrath and the righteousness of God to be fired down upon sin in the person of his son. He sacrificed his own son because of sin. Why would God, therefore, after doing that, operate in a way where he would incline a person within to commit sin that he punished his own son for? It's an utter contradiction of logical thinking that God would be responsible to tempt someone to sin or to prompt someone to do what is wrong. And sadly, though, let's be real, that is the error to want to shift blame that has been in existence since the Garden of Eden. If you think of Genesis chapter 3, where God gives the one prohibition to Adam, you made of all the trees in the garden. Remember, but he said, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. God gives a basis for Adam to be able to prove his love and fidelity to God. God does not violate the free will or manipulate man to follow him like a robot. So he had to create an opportunity for man to demonstrate his willingness to want to love God, to want to follow God. He gives him one prohibition. What does Adam do? Ultimately, Adam and Eve, we know that the failure takes place. They partake, they disobey God. And then when God goes searching out Adam and finds him trying to hide from God, which is a rather vain effort, as if somehow you can play hide and seek with God and win the process. That's a rather vain idea. But he gets to Adam and it tells us in Genesis chapter three that God says to Adam, have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Anything you want to confess, Adam? Here's Adam's response, first confession in the Bible. It says that Adam said to God, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave it to me and I ate. I mean, there's a double blame shift. First of all, she gave it to me. And then he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's, let's rewind there. Actually, God, it's the woman that you gave me. God, I was, I was doing okay when it was just me and you in the garden here. And then you decided to give me this woman. And now I sinned. Now I blew it. Now I failed. What's Adam doing? He starts blame shifting a person, but then he transitions the blame right back to God. You gave her to me, God. You gave me this wife. You put this person in my life. And now therefore, that's why I did this. That's my excuse. And he's blaming God for really the reason of why he ended up sinning and doing the disobedient thing he did. And let me say to this day, people still very much infer by their words and their reasoning regarding sinful things that God is the one to blame for why they do sinful things. It happens to this day still. The reason I have these desires or behave this way, it's just the way that I was born. The implication, this is the way God made me. He's the creator and he made me like this and so therefore the wrong, unhealthy, sinful desires within me that's God's responsibility. It's not mine. So therefore, I have a right to behave this way or I have a right to fulfill these desires because God's to blame. He's the one that made me. So he's the one that also put these evil or sinful or inappropriate desires within me. The idea there, what's being said? God's causing the temptation. It's God's fault. He's causing this temptation within me. So therefore, I have what? An excuse to then indulge in my wrong desire. 
And look, this is very simply, sadly, the confused reasoning that exists today in our culture, for example, with same-sex attraction and the practice of homosexual sin. This is the same line of reasoning that is used there. That somehow it's a justifiable thing. I'm just, you know, I, I'm like this because God's made me like this, and so therefore He's causing the temptation within me. So therefore, it's not wrong. I have a right to do this. It's not my fault. I have this desire or temptation or inclination within me. And the idea is blaming the the, the thing on God. Listen. I understand that that is a wrestling, but you, you cannot follow that line of reasoning. Just follow that line of reasoning out in regards to other sinful acts, and you soon begin to realize that's just not rational. That's not realistic. Let me illustrate. Let's say a married man says, I just have a very strong yearning for sexual fulfillment. So therefore, in order to satisfy the amount of desire I have, I just need to commit adultery. And I can't help that God put all these beautiful women on the earth and that he, that he made me with such a strong desire for sex. And, and so why should I be the blame for this? It's, you know, this is not my problem that I have this struggle. Therefore, I have the right to indulge my sexual desire and appetite. We would look at that and say, well, you out of your mind? No, it's called, yes, you have the presence of a desire, but it's called you need to subdue that desire. You need to learn how to have self-control in the same way. Let's say someone says, look, I, I, just, I just have a really strong tendency and inclination towards anger, and God keeps tempting me with all these annoying people in my life. <laughs> so it's not my fault that I'm hurting people. Why should I have to sit in a prison cell just because I murdered somebody? I can't help it. I was born with an inclination towards anger and violence. How are you going to start justifying that? You're going to change the laws for somebody who's got anger and violence issues? You're going to all of a sudden say that it's endorsed and okay because they just have a strong... You would say, no, no. I understand. But you, that's your struggle. You've got to learn to overcome your struggle in a proper and a healthy way. Let's say, for example, I, just, I always want new things and I can never be content and God makes me see all these great things every time all around and I'm just tempted to steal. Don't arrest me for being a thief. I was just made that way. I have to steal and it's just who I am and, and, and I, I would be wrong to say that a thief is, is in somehow doing something wrong. I have a right to be happy. I'm a thief. I need to steal things. That's just what I need to do. And see, we need to realize this line of reasoning to transfer blame to God for what's felt or desired within that, that somehow we're tempted to do what's wrong and it's God's fault is a very poor line of reasoning. And what it really becomes is just human sinfulness and the nature of man to want to shift and transfer blame and never take personal responsibility for themselves. We always want to shift blame somewhere else. And look, ladies and gentlemen, this is a driving current in our culture. Nobody wants to take responsibility for everything, anything. Everybody wants to feel they are entitled to do what they want, when they want, and you are horribly wrong if you would tell them that's wrong and inappropriate. And what our culture does not realize, and we are raising a whole other generation of young people, it's getting more and more prominent. Listen, I have you know, two, one's graduating high school this year, my other one's now a young adult and in college, 
And the mindset, it, you know, once you begin to go down this slope, it becomes a very slippery slope. How are you ever going to justify telling anyone at some point what they desire or what they long for is wrong? Because you're, well, you said that was wrong two, three decades ago, but now it's right and now it's even legal and more than that, now it's strongly promoted and it's championed as you are courageous and the champion if you live that. How are you going to tell anybody with any inclination to do anything you might as well just open all the prisons up and tell everybody you're free to go. That, that nothing is wrong anymore because how can you justifiably without partiality say one person deserves what they desire and the other person doesn't? This becomes a very, very unhealthy thing. We always want to transfer blame, deny responsibility. Well, it's because of this, that's why I did that. Or it's because of them, that's why I behaved this way. And the worst of all is when we sadly, James says here, want to blame God and we want to say it's God's fault that is a really unhealthy thing so James says listen let no one say when he's tempted I'm tempted by God God cannot be tempted by evil the truth is he himself does not tempt anyone verse 14 he says but each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed and then when desire is conceived it gives birth to sin and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. So the Holy Spirit, through James here, he kind of now dissects for us the anatomy of temptation and sin to help us hear the truth about temptation and sin and how it happens and kind of the process. And he says, first of all, it begins with wrong desires within a person persuading them. He says there in verse 14 that when each one, this is how it happens, when each one is tempted, when he's drawn away by his own desires notice temptation is something everyone struggles with to some degree we're all wrestling with it everybody to some capacity is tempted to do what's wrong at different times in different ways it's a universal struggle he doesn't say only certain ones are tempted no he says each one is tempted by their own desires everyone's wrestling in different ways with forms of temptation but notice it's because of our own wrong desires that each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires again the bible puts the ownership of the desires that are wrong desires within me upon myself they're my own desires it's my own wrong you know, cravings or lusts or preferences for things that are inappropriate, the sinful desires within, whether it's you know, anger or pride or stealing or lying or cheating or lust. It's our own desires that create a longing within us to act or behave in sinful ways because the Bible teaches we are all sinful by nature, that we're just prone to, we're naturally magnetically drawn to do what is wrong. The Bible speaks of the lusts, the cravings of the flesh and the mind. That is the cravings within all of us to want to satisfy the cravings within us that at times are just wrong and evil. And that can be anything, whether it's just you know feeling like we want to react in a situation to say something nasty to somebody or let out our frustration or be mean or cruel. I mean, whatever it is. It's our own craving, this innate desire to do not what is right, but want to do what's wrong. And it's super important that we know that this is a reality inside of all of our lives. 
because to the degree that we know that we can guard against our evil longings and seek to avoid being ruled by them because if those desires aren't dealt with personally or they're not denied by the power of God and an awareness of where they emanate from our desires James says here in verse 14 our desires ultimately will cause us look at it, he says to then be drawn away towards doing what is wrong so the desire is where it begins with and if it's not dealt with the desire then we find ourselves being drawn away that is lured or persuaded away from God away from what's right and towards committing sin he says we then verse 14 become enticed and that word enticed there that's used refers to chasing after a baited hook now I'm not a fisherman but I understand the general concept of what you do with fishing you don't put the nice sharp dangerous hook right down in the water and expect some fish to be dumb enough to just bite it you bait the hook you make it look appealing you hide what's dangerous you hide what's going to snag them and catch them by making it look very appealing making it look appetizing enjoyable and it's intended to draw the fish in to get them to what commit you entice them to get them to indulge to commit to it and then the goal is to then snag or trap them and that's how temptation works the devil is a master at baiting hooks and he does it in very wonderful ways he's a master deceiver I mean if there's anybody that should teach a marketing and advertising class it is the devil I mean, his ability to market things well and package them and promote them to, to draw people in, to pull customers in, to get them to commit is phenomenal. It's phenomenal. But this is what he does spiritually. There's always this step in the temptation process where there's wrong desires within us and then we find ourselves being enticed and persuaded and lured away by enticement and being drawn towards something and really enticement is just a solicitation to do evil and this is what happens the devil solicits us to behave wrongly to act wrongly and he advertises it to the point where it feels so irresistible that people find it very hard to pass up the opportunity not to indulge which brings us then to verse 15 which is another part in the process at some point there's the desires within then we're drawn away and enticed and then ultimately what happens certainly there's the decision to act the decision moment comes where we commit and we engage in the practice of sin he says verse 15 then when desire has conceived it gives birth to sin and sin when it's full grown brings forth death so notice he pictures temptation that results in committing sin like conception that results in birth and I want you to think realistically in regards to conception conception is a biological process where two things are joined together to create something and if those two things are not joined together nothing will be created it takes two things to be joined together in conception to then create and give birth to something. And this is the same way in regards to giving birth to sin. When it comes to conceiving and giving birth to sin, when, listen, when sinful desire is joined together with sinful opportunity, when desire meets opportunity, when those two things are joined together, desire and opportunity, then unwanted spiritual conception gives birth to something called sin. We then engage, we then 
commit sin by entering into it. So the key is practicing, if you would, spiritual abstinence in keeping these two things apart. Sinful desire and opportunity to sin. And to the extent that we abstain and keep those two things apart in coming together, we will be able to avoid. There will always be sinful desires at work within us. That's not going to change. We have a sinful nature. It's going to be there until we go home to heaven. Jeremiah 17 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And that's on a good day. That's the condition of our hearts. Our hearts by nature are going to be prone to what's wrong. We have to endeavor to walk in the Spirit, not let those things rule over us. The Bible tells us in Galatians 5, walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify then the lust of the flesh. So the presence of sinful desire is always going to be there raging within us. And then there's always going to be opportunities on this earth to indulge and practice sin. And they just seem to be becoming more and more available. The longer time goes on and the closer we get to the return of Jesus. So there's always going to be the doorway to enter into sin. So we've got to be wise and seek to avoid and flee opportunity to engage sin because I have little control over the rotten desires within me. They just show up every morning again. They're just there again. And I can seek to suppress and walk in this spirit and so forth. But what I do have control over is opportunity to sin. That's why we need to be intentional and proactive to avoid opportunities to indulge, indulge sin. And let me just say, this isn't rocket science. Often it's very practical, seeking to avoid opportunities to minimize occasions when we would sin. Whenever we allow wrong desires to connect with opportunity, the result, he says, is it's always going to give birth to sin. These two, when they come together, always result in bad decisions, selfish choice, and sin is entered into. And just like there's a process to something being born, there's always a process that leads to sin being committed. It's just the way that it happens. At the end of the day, sin is a choice. It's a choice. I remember a book long, long time ago. I first became a Christian. I, I only read the title of it because a lot of times I just read the title of a book. I get the point and I'm too lazy to read it. The book said this. If the devil made you do it, dot, 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 you blew it. I thought, ah, I got that. That's an idea. Yeah, the devil tempts and persuades and he advertises and he markets. But at the end of the day, the book was basically saying, whoever took the time to read it, it's not the devil's fault. It's your fault. You sinned. I sinned. I chose to act wrongly and therefore I'm personally responsible for my own sin. I'm accountable to God for my sin. Because the devil can prompt, the devil can persuade, but the devil cannot push or make us do something. He's not able to do that. He draws, he tempts, but we choose to conceive sin by letting desire meet with opportunity. And that's why, listen, be practical by golly, I mean, I talk to people on occasion who you know, end up entering into sin or struggling with something. Oh, I just don't understand. I don't understand why I keep struggling with this. And just, I just I, I keep looking at things I shouldn't look at on my computer. I don't know why I keep doing it or whatever. Throw your computer out. Oh, well, come on. This is 2017. i got to have a computer. You do? If you got an issue you can't resolve, maybe you don't need to have a computer. Maybe you don't need to have a phone. Because what's more important? Your soul, the condition of your life, or being able to be technologically savvy? I, I don't know. 
I assure you, I can get, is there anybody in this room who doesn't have a computer? No one? How many, raise your hand, seriously. Anybody who doesn't have a computer? How are you living? <laughs> you must be miracle workers. Wow. Listen, well, I don't understand why I, why I keep struggling with drinking. I'm hanging out with these guys, but I don't understand why I keep struggling with drinking. What are you hanging with people are drinking for? This isn't rocket science so often. Well, I don't understand. We just drove out to this location and we were looking at the, looking at the moon and it was, yeah, we were sitting there in the car and we were cuddling and then, well, I don't know how it happened. I can tell you how it happened. It's called the birds and the bees. It's called chemicals that work strongly in your body when you're attracted to something. This isn't really complicated. He's saying keep desire away from opportunity. And he says the reason why is because then when sin is full grown, it brings forth death. Notice there's damaging effects of sin. When sin is full grown, you see the Bible implies sin grows. It grows. And that is so true, is it not? Sin is never content to just stay small. It always wants to develop. It wants to take more control over your life. It wants to have a greater fulfillment. A little bit isn't enough. It always wants more. It wants the next level of intensity. It wants more frequency, more fulfillment. Sin is always going to grow. It's always got a history, and it always wants to create more and more opportunity moving forward. And he says the horrible thing is sin, as it continues to grow and, and develop, it's destructive. It brings forth death. Sin always kills. It always robs of life. It kills a person's spiritual life. It harms people. It takes dominating control over lives and brings bad consequences. It ruins relationships. It ruins our walk and our life with God and what we experience. Sin is a destructive thing. That's why it's wise to never ever ignore small concessions. Oh, I mean, yeah, I was a concession, but I mean, that's just a small thing. It's okay. I'm not going that far with it. Yet. Because sin grows and it always destroys in the end. It has a destructive effect in our lives. That's why James simply says, verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. He's not saying those things in an unloving or a critical attitude, but out of love for his spiritual family. He calls them beloved brethren. Don't be deceived by these things, he's saying. See, when you love someone, right, you don't want to see them doing self-destructive things. And sin is deceptive. So he loves the people of God. So he says, don't let yourself be deceived. The language is literally stop allowing yourself to be deceived and stumbling in these ways with temptation and sin. He's begging them out of love because he doesn't want to see them experience harm. Because God doesn't want us to be deceived regarding temptation and sin, but to overcome it to avoid it, to walk in victory. You know, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And then he says, no temptation has seized you except it is common to all men. But God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, he'll provide a way of escape so that you can bear up under it. Simple translation, everybody's being tempted God never lets us be tempted beyond a point where it's not possible to resist it. He's loving. He would never let the enemy have that much access because he doesn't want to see us fail and falter. And with the temptation, he always makes a way of escape. There is always a doorway of escape. The point is simply this. is You're cruising down the road and you're seeing sin ahead, sin ahead, sin ahead, sin ahead. God's making exit ramps saying, get off, get off. There's another ramp, there's another ramp. 
And we, if we're honest, can always look back in hindsight and say, yeah, there were a few exit ramps. I just, I just didn't take them. God always provides the way of escape. The important thing is take the way of escape. Remember that old uh, poem, Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. Here's my question. Why was Humpty sitting on the wall? So my question to you is this. Perhaps the word of the Lord for some of you is, why are you sitting on the wall of sin and temptation? You're risking a great fall. Don't sit on the wall. Stay as far away from the wall as you can. Because <laughs> there will always be plenty of slippery slopes and traps and landmines everywhere else you walk anyway. Don't go sitting on the wall. There's nothing healthy about that. And Jesus wants to help. Hebrews 2 says he's able to aid those who are tempted. Hebrews 4 tells us that Jesus was tempted in all points as we are, yet was without sin. He never failed, so he's able to help us as living in humanity to help us with any temptation. Oh, I'm, what I'm dealing with, it's so hard. Maybe I honestly can't relate. Maybe somebody else honestly can't relate. But the Bible says Jesus was tempted in all points in his humanity and he never sinned. That is, he beat every temptation. And if you have Jesus in your life, the power of the risen Christ lives within you and he would say to you, listen, I know you can't beat this. Surrender, submit. I'm in you. I've already beat this before. I can defeat it. I can help you overcome it. Let's stand. Let's pray.